City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Welcome back to City Limits for 2021. We are really excited to be here on 3CR again. And I am Meg Kimber and with me is Zeb. Hello. Uh, Zeb, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. I had thought we might be back in the studio by now, but we're still pre-recording via Zoom with the amazing Karina, who is also here, not technically pressing buttons, but still making it possible for us to go to air, which we are very grateful for. Yeah, and Kevin is not quite back yet, but we're hoping that he will be able to come back soon. Yes, indeed. Yeah, Um, it will be very good to have him back. If for no other reason than he used to give us free tea when we were in the studio. <laughs> yes, I might, I do have some tea, which I might try pouring right now, just Lovely. to keep it Good going. Business. There we That's go. Great. You know, what we should really do is actually have City Limits be a video, like that we should put on the website so people can see us pouring the tea, because that was really fun. <laughs> Yeah, every every day a different tea. <laughs> yeah. So, and every day more news as well. Do you mm-hmm. like that segue? Um, Beautiful. So, you have done some amazing uh, research and pulled together a few news stories that we can talk about for the top of the show. And, of course, I should say it's the first week of the month, so it's Transport Week, and we will be joined by John McPherson, our resident transport commentator, um, at about 20 past. Yeah, uh, but for now, it's Zeb and I talking about some of the latest news. Yeah, so I've just got a collection of fun facts to talk about, or fun or not, as the case may be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, first up, we've got an article from The Age. It's actually from about two weeks back, um, but it's about people returning to office work. Mm-hmm. And apparently industrial lawyers have been saying that workers could be sacked if they refuse a request from their employers to return to the office once um, the Victorian government has relaxed all of the restrictions to attendance. Mm. Um, and yeah, there was a scheduled return of up to 50% of the private sector staff and 25% of public sector employees um, a while back that was delayed by the Black Rock coronavirus cluster. I'm a bit behind the times now, so I'm not sure whether that's now been mm. implemented. Do you know? Actually, I don't know, but I don't think it has. I think, um, yeah, there's different rules for the public service than there is for uh, private sector and community sector employees. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure. But uh, we know from, you know, previous conversations on city limits that, um, you know, workplace conditions have been tough for a lot of people, even, of course, before the COVID situation happened and then people working from home uh you know it's a classic example of employers uh wanting to uh get what they can from their employees and if it means working from home then 
that's what happens. And then when it's time to go back to the office, uh, sounds like there's not a lot of flexibility there for staff to actually negotiate. Yeah. And what was interesting was that apparently there was a survey that the Fair Work Commission did that found that only 5% of Australian workers wanted to return to the office full time, wow. uh, which is tiny. Um, <laughs> yeah. So with that in mind, it just seems like, um, shouldn't we be having more of a conversation about flexibility um, yeah. and, you know, changes to like an uh, employee's right to, to have more flexibility after this pandemic? Yeah, indeed. So I think it's it's illuminated the fact that the this whole idea of what what is called work life balance um, is it has probably not been working very well for a long time. Yep. Um, especially people who have multiple roles, and often that's why women are statistically paid less and more often in part time work. Um, is because still as a society, a lot of that uh, responsibility for things such as childcare, elder care, um, other family responsibilities do tend to still fall on women. And that has a huge impact on a person's capacity to work. So this would be a really good time to be re-examining how we, how we, how we function in that way. But sadly, we've seen like a lot of cuts to the uh, power of unions and the power of collective organising and collective bargaining and um, representation. So a um, bit of a rough time. Yeah, I yeah. guess we'll just keep a, keep an eye on the progress of that over, mm. the, over the next few weeks and see what happens in terms of people going mm. back to the office. Um, mm. But, yeah, it's a difficult one. Mm. Um, another article that I found, uh, one from the green left, was um, it just had a few facts that I wasn't aware of that I thought would be interesting to just note. Um, so Australia has refused to set a net zero emissions target, which probably most people listening to this program knew, mm. but I didn't know. Mm. Um, but the other thing is that the Climate Council um, has apparently found that on current trends, Australia won't reach net zero emissions for another 300 years. <laughs> How will we even meet it in 300 years? <laughs> I don't That's know. Terrible. That's terrible. So, yeah, let's, you know, <laughs> let's put a bit more work in Australia. <laughs> the, the government should put that in their ads. On track to meet zero emissions in just 300 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well wow. within the time we need. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh um, another one from Green Left is that uh, over 100 people have protested against, this is in New South Wales, mm. um, there's a plan to bulldoze 112 public housing dwellings in, I think you pronounce this, Glebe? Glebe, yes. Uh, yeah. 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 And um, the buildings are only 30 years old. Wow. And had won design awards for their amenity, but for mm. some reason um, they're going to be destroyed mm. and replaced with new development with only 30% um, public mm. dwellings and 70% private. So mm. 
Yes, we see mm. the same patterns appearing. Mm. Yeah, obviously governments, are, like state governments are talking to each other about the best way to get rid of public housing and replace it with private housing. Um, yeah, that public-private mix is a, is a very uh, common strategy now, it seems. Yeah, it just, mm. there's, there's such an audacity in destroying buildings that mm. are only mm. 30 years old, though. Yep, um. and uh, livable, pleasant homes. Yeah, that's yeah. a real shame. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. They, yeah. they've, had a, they've got a, a group, Hands Off Glebe. That's um, good on them. Yeah, solidarity to them. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, what else have I found? Just got a collection of very, very dispersed little news items. Yeah, we can talk about the train timetables when John comes in because there's one from ABC I can see that you've um, found that's about the uh, metropolitan trains in the city loop. That'd be a good one to yeah, chat lots to John of new about. services there, so yeah. that'd be that'd be good to chat to him about. Yeah. Um, some other ones that I found interesting were there was a study that um, so it came out in pursuit uh, the University of Melbourne's publication. Mm. Um, and it was on sort of urban greening called five green ways to help keep you all cool this summer. Um, mm. But it was saying that firstly, that local government areas across Australia seem to in general be um, facing reductions in tree canopy, mm. um, which I suppose is to be expected that uh, with, you know, increasing development that would happen. Um, but that also uh, there's a, they found that 24% of all public trees in Australia's city or more than one third of tree species uh, are going to be at risk from the increased temperatures due to climate change by mm. 2070. So there's mm. also this aspect of um, the, the urban forestry or the, the urban canopy that we, that we have mm. in our cities is going to be um, at risk from increased temperatures. And that's, that's another exacerbating factor. Mm, this is a really interesting study. And it's um, been pulled together by uh, researchers from universities all around Australia, which is really cool. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very comprehensive. We can put the link in the podcast on... Uh, for the show, 3cr.org.au is where you can access the show as a podcast. And um, it's well worth having a look. I was interested to see that a huge amount of the urban canopy in Melbourne, Perth and Sydney uh, is actually in on residential land. Um, yes. So not in parks or street trees, but in people's backyards. And, and the, the comment that they're making is that this will decrease further as we increase the uh, density of cities. Yeah, yeah. And another challenge that apparently Melbourne is facing is that a lot of the trees that we have currently, um, the, the ones on public land, they were planted at around the same time and they tend mm. to be of similar species which means that their lifespan is similar. So we might find that um, when they reach the end of their lifespan, we suddenly have, mm. you know, a lot mm. less trees. Um, mm. So, yeah, a lot of things to deal with, but they do have 
they do have some interesting things in there. Um, they've also mm. got suggestions of new species that would be good to plant that would be adapted to rising temperatures. So yeah, an interesting mm. read. Mm, absolutely. Well, do you think it's time to move on to a break and then to John? Yeah, let's do it. Um, and so if you've just tuned in, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR and it's our transport show. We'll be joined after the break with um, our resident transport commentator, John McPherson. Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10am every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Okay, welcome back to City Limits. We've now got John McPherson um, with us to talk about transport. So maybe we'll just hop straight back into it. And uh, how are you, John, first of all? Oh, okay, thanks, yeah. Like, like everybody else um, in this strange new world of, <laughs> of still, yeah. dealing with, um, still dealing with the virus and 12 months later, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. incredible. Yeah. And do you, have any, do you have anything lined up for us? about transport? Uh, I was sort of wondering what Meg might have lined up for transport. Well, well, actually, uh, Zeb, I, I'm going to defer to Zeb, but she has, um, Zeb has found an interesting article from the ABC that I'm sure you would have seen about the uh, extra 450 services being added to Victoria's train network, yep. so 450 extra services each week. Yep, yep. Um, changes to the, the busiest lines. Uh -huh. So I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that and the way that passengers travel into and around the city loop. So there are some big changes happening. There are, there are. And um, everything is sort of muddled up with dealing with the, again, dealing with the virus mm. because services, mm. you know, haven't, haven't yet gone back to normal levels. No. Um, and at the same time, we've got the, um, the changes in the, um, pattern of the way the loop's going to be used mm. uh, and uh, you know 
the government or, or authorities probably don't want use of public transport to go back to quite the way it was because the uh, peak hour peak hour crowding you know when every service mm. was pretty full on the trams and the trains you know is not um the way to deal with um you know the possibility of um, viral spread indeed absolutely yeah so i guess oh sorry you go then uh i was just that just reminded me that one of the points that they were going to try to implement was fair discounts um applying in the next three months yes. that uh are in the off-peak times That's which of right. course yes. uh that part doesn't really it it's not helping those that have to get to work at a certain time mm -hmm. um but i what do you think about that well it, it it, well, the, it's designed to spread the load um, mm. by, by ha having formal off-peak fares that are available. Well, I think it's um, after 9.30 in the morning. This would be Monday to Friday, I'm pretty sure. And then, uh, and then um, in the after, I think after, after 4 p.m. Yeah. yeah, 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. would be another peak period. Yeah. And mm. then after 7 p.m. would again go to off-peak. Well, look, it should it should help to spread the load. It should. Uh, <laughs> um, well, you need a you need a um, and coordinated approach with employers. Really, I would. Well, you need a whole lot of things, and of course, yeah. all there is an announcement, you know, that says, <laughs> "Oh, yeah, this is going to happen," and it happens. But uh, governments seem incredibly bad at promoting anything they do on public, you know, do for public transport except in promoting it in terms of um, um, making it sound like a big idea that'll be that'll be um, good for the next election you know uh, so yeah. so the off-peak thing is probably fairly easy for them to implement because they can do it by the Mikey card um, so it'll just just happen automatically depending on when you tag on and tag off I would, I would imagine that, that's how it'll be worked so look, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> it's 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 probably a good thing, but um, uh, it's a bit it's a bit minimalist, maybe. Yeah, perhaps right. the the integration is is what's going to be difficult because we were just talking before as well in the um, yeah. in the intro sure. about the fact that workers um, aren't going to necessarily have the, the option to to choose to stay home once the mm. victorian government's restrictions um are let down and people are allowed to come back to their offices yep. then it's up to the employers um to dictate whether employees can come mm. back or not um and so that intersects with whether the public transport is going to be safe enough um yep. for everyone to start using again yeah 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 um, uh, well, at least they're retaining the mask wearing on public transport, which I think I think mm. is good. Yeah. Um, uh, that that gives everybody a bit of a sense of security, I guess. Uh, um, but but um, how much flexibility um, employees have? Yeah, about about when they choose, you know, decide or when they it's convenient for them to go to work. That's going to be a that's going to be quite quite an interesting thing, just mm. to see. I mean, there are a lot of office jobs where you could possibly um, start after nine thirty, 
But of course, if you if you've got to get on the train at nine thirty mm. after nine thirty, that's going to be quite late by the time say you're going to the city. You know, people can can have up to a say an hour's travel time, so they're not going to be getting to their jobs until ten thirty. So you know, is that really going to is that really going to um, work, or mm. or should it be dictated by getting to the city by nine thirty? You know, because that's mm. half that's an hour later than than the peak currently, I think, the, the current peak, you know, previously, the current peak for peak hour, people getting to work would have been between 8.30 and 9, 9 mm. o'clock. Um, have you had a chance to have a look at which what changes they've made? No, I haven't Haven't particularly. Um, um, the, nine, the 450 services sounds terrific, but when you spread it across the whole system for a whole week, yeah, yeah. It doesn't work out to many services per line, you know? No, apparently the upfield line has 15 new services each week. Right. I'm not sure when, they, I don't know when they'll be because they don't even go around every 20 well, minutes. Well, that sounds like 15 new services a week. You see, that's seven and a half services per direction. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what, you know, that's not much. Um, no, no. Um, you know, it's they always they always catch these these announcements in in this sort of way to make things sound terrific, um, but it's not. You know, again, again, I think it's often about you know pr making it sound good promotionally without actually um, admitting that they're only doing a little bit. You know, um, it's I think I think it's a very disappointing way of going about it that the that the whole thing is done in this. Um, cloud of hype <laughs> any changes yeah um, and of course the the long term um i suppose what would be really exciting would be starting to shift to this idea of the 15 minute city that a lot more people have been promoting since the pandemic yeah. um and you know how how could we start to move towards that sort of um yeah. that sort of organization of a city i don't know if you have any any ideas on that? Well, yeah, I, I think I think it's been around now for a few years. The fifteen-minute city or the twenty-minute city, um, and it, and it, and of course, um, what it's trying to do is uh, is uh, make or encourage. You can't really make, but you can encourage big cities to work as as a series of smaller, smaller not villages but smaller towns maybe with their own hubs. And, and with people's then have the ability to get most of their needs met with uh, quite much more local travel. So I think I think that, that's that's um, I mean that's the idea of it, and I, and I think it is a really good idea, and it, and it's and it is and it is a way to um, to handle large cities and make them make them more more livable, um, but. Uh, the last say 30 years in America, in America and in Melbourne, the last 30 years in Melbourne, there's been a big emphasis on extra uh, job growth being in the, in the centre, in the CBD, in the inner suburbs and the CBD. So the public transport system has become, uh, you know, it's been focused on getting people to and from their work in the CBD and the inner city, which means yeah. that people are making really long long journeys often, you know, like making journeys well over an hour from the outer suburbs. And, and that doesn't 
doesn't seem like a viable way to go into the future. That's for sure. So, uh, and I'm not sure the uh, policies of the gov this government or any government are really um, working towards change changing the changing that for the future. Yes, and it it will be quite um, difficult because it's these number of factors that uh, need to change concurrently, really, with um, yeah. where people's jobs are located and then providing the services and amenities closer to mm -hmm. or in like more local hubs um, and then also um, adapting transport to that as well. So there yeah. are a lot of a lot of different angles that kind of need to work together on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's... Um there's been announcements in the past in in, in Melbourne and, and in Sydney too, where they want to want to create um, you know extra hubs apart from the CBD. Like like um, I'm trying to think. Melbourne's Melbourne has a policy with a nominated number of um, hubs. You know, in in outer areas, more outer areas. But but again, that that does that seems to have gone off the boil quite a lot. Maybe the only thing that's got any focus on that is possibly the orbital suburban line, you know, that um, that Andrews uh, announced out of the blue for the last election, you know, the uh, orbital rail line. And has there um, been any any news on that? Obviously, COVID. Yeah, there has there has been some news on that. They they again, I put in put in brackets at this point that I don't think this thing has been studied properly. There's been no analysis of whether the orbital rail corridor is is a good is a you know a good thing whether it's value for money. It's it just seems to have come out of almost nowhere because Andrews had a thought bubble, and and it got invented in his um, office before the election. Uh, so I'm not I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of this thing because I just haven't seen the the support for it that really shows how valuable it'll be, especially compared with other public transport projects that, that, are, that are needed and have been needed for a long time. And that they seem to be being ignored to, to go on with the orbital thing. So whether the orbital thing is going to link together the, the um, other hubs that, that the government has specified in the past, I'm not sure. Um, again, you see, there's no, there's no, detail to really to look at it's just just been it's just been mostly um, embedded at a political level and I think that's really really wrong yeah a lack of community engagement yeah yeah um, they're, they're down in the southeast there's there's um, work starting that's where they've decided they're going to start and there's already been an outcry because they want to take away some um, parkland uh, not current, not current parkland, actually planned parkland uh, to provide marshalling yards for the um, for the train the trains that will be used on the orbital line, um, and those you know they do need those sort of those sort of um, facilities to maintain the trains, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so that's already causing uh, annoyance down in the southeastern suburbs. So that's, but that's that's where they, they appear to be starting. Um, and again, I'm not quite sure that I understand why 
that theory that desperately needs the orbital railing first, you know, and this is a project that's going to possibly take 30 years to, to complete. Mm. Yeah, and so down around Cheltenham or Clayton right, or something Cheltenham. like that. Yeah, that's it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, rather than starting at the other end, which would be Werribee, Sunshine, yeah, yeah. Melbourne Airport, yeah. which would definitely be <laughs> well, much Well, that's more. the thing. I mean, the West the West seems to be more starved to me of um, rail-based public transport than the South East. Yeah. Uh, 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 so then you ask yourself whether it's got a lot to do with um, political needs, you know, uh, marginal, yeah. marginal seats for uh, Labor or, or or seats they might be able to win from the Liberals, you know, things like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so often, um, to me, public transport planning is, is, is really done on the basis of um, political needs rather than... Uh, rather than uh, the social and you know welfare and economic needs of the city yeah yeah that's 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 the evident power of lobbying which yeah. you know yeah. why we, we've had commentators on the show about um you know having anti-corruption and um you know integrity commissions yeah. for you know state and federal levels that have real yeah. power yeah. yeah but there's still this the system of lobbying still does allow yeah Certain interests. Well, well, we've got we've got this agency now called Invite. No, sorry, Infrastructure Victoria. Let's get it right, John. Uh, which is supposed to give the government, you know, lots of clear, um, um, unbiased advice about what we need in the way of infrastructure for transport. But um, it seems already, after only being set up, you know, possibly three years or so. For being completely ignored by the government when it feels like it, you know. Yeah. And, and this is an agency that the government set up, you know. And so you, you do you do end up wondering what where, how these decisions are actually made. Um, yeah. <laughs> they don't seem to go through the channels that are put, you know, actually put in place. <laughs> yeah, the political aspect also does really seem to create a bias for these big, uh, the, the sort of big build projects um, that are really impressive and yep. you have a lot of PR about over mm -hmm. more incremental or um, subtle changes to uh -huh. the network that would make it more integrated or just have yep. more frequent services yep. Yep. Um, that don't sound as impressive. Absolutely right. <laughs> totally right. Um, before the orbital rail thing gets built up. My view is that there are so many smaller, as you've just said very well, there are so many smaller projects on many of the rail lines and many of the tram lines and, you know, probably most of all bus routes, bus, bus networks that really need to be improved because many of them have had no real improvements for, you know, decades, decades. Um, yeah, um, another... Uh, another really big project that is also very controversial is this Northeast Link project yes. uh, for the Mega Toll Road. Yes. Um, and they're in early works of construction now, I think. Yes. There is there is a group protesting this, the Stop the Northeast Link Alliance. Um, but it's it's also interesting that there isn't as much of a uproar about it as I would expect. It, certainly doesn't seem like there's as much um, 
talk against it as there was for the East-West link. Yes, yes. Um, um. Yeah. Um, well, if you, I can comment, I live near where the East-West link would have gone <laughs> in yes. Collingwood. And um, yeah, we, we, felt, we felt that quite intensely. But they've, they've learnt... I've learned since then, or well, the Northeast Link, for instance, a lot of it's going to be in tunnel. And then everybody thinks, oh, well, it's going to be in tunnel, therefore it might be, won't affect things on the surface. But of course, that's wrong, because even with a road in a tunnel, you need a huge network of feeder roads on the surface to get the traffic in and out of the tunnel. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and we've had a big, uh, big scandal with the Westgate Tunnel and toxic yep. soil dumping mm. um, from mm. digging out that tunnel. Yep, yep. T tunnels look like a like a solution to to problems governments have, but um, in reality, yeah, not so much. <laughs> um, and the Northeast Link, of course, is going to go underground underneath uh, part of the Yarra Valley Park and under the river. Uh, but when you look at the huge road junctions it's going to include, you know, like where it meets the Eastern Freeway, where it's something like 20 lanes wide at one point, uh, uh, you wouldn't want to be anywhere near that uh, for noise and pollution reasons. You know, even if, you're, even if your house survived, if you just had this thing, you know, anywhere near you, the, um, the, um, the, 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 the effects of it are going to be pretty, pretty, pretty massive. Yeah, um, and it's going to, um, it's basically going to go, part of the tunnel is going to go pretty much under, like, if people know the Heidi Art correct. Museum. It's going to go quite close, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's going to pretty much be tunneling under there. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be opening up a possibility, actually, for um, argue, arguments for building the east-west link again because it's mm. it's part of this uh, rationale um, that the government has of making this kind of linked up circle yep. around yep. Melbourne. Yep. Well, that that's going to be an issue with it. It's being built as as the the connection of the ring road around the outer ring road around the city, but the trouble mm. is it's also going to become a feeder road for traffic to get onto the eastern freeway to head towards the city rather than rather, rather necessarily diverting traffic further out around the city it's also going to encourage a flow a bigger flow of traffic in towards the city on the eastern freeway just just because the, the scale of the road is, will be built on the basis of it's predicting it'll predict what traffic they think it's going to carry and then they'll extend that 20 or 30 years into the future and then they'll build it that big and that will of course induce huge amounts of traffic onto the road and and even if they deny that's what they're on about i'm sorry folks it is what they're on about inducing more, more traffic because it's going to be a toll road and it's a toll road um owned by a you know large successful toll road company that's um what, what are they called at the moment uh, trans are they still called transurban um, sure. i i don't i'm not sure if it's transurban on this project um transurban no. is definitely doing the westgate tunnel yeah yeah you could be right yeah but it's but it's certainly going to be toll road 
and, and toll roads need, of course, all the traffic they can get because they're, they're relying on the tolls to uh, pave them. So inevitably, the thing is built to generate, to make as much, bring as much traffic in, into the road as possible. And, and that's what's happening, yeah. And so, so it's, it's a bit of a sneaky way then maybe to build part of it. And then the logic of a lot of these projects is always like, oh, well, now we've got that part, we may as well, you know, this is going to link up really well with mm -hmm. this other project and then yep. sneak it in. One of the things before we go to a little break, one of the things about with the Northeast Link is that they're suggesting a park and ride at Bulleen, which <laughs> sounds like so funny because they're going to, people are going to drive to a highway park their car and then get on a bus yeah, yeah. like is that for real <laughs> that's kind of crazy well, <laughs> people are just going to keep driving right yeah they're going to yeah. they're going to keep they're going to keep driving as far as i can drive yeah. yeah 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 it's 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 such a tiny little um gesture as, as, yeah. as to look pathetic yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, well, we'll just take a little break. We're, uh, you're on uh, City Limits on 3CR. This is our transport show. We're joined by John McPherson. And um, this show is podcastable on your podcast app. And you can also listen to it online at 3cr.org.au slash City Limits. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. corner of the land. Womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au You're back on City Limits and we're talking about transport. Okay, well, yeah. can, I just make, can I just comment that the North East Link, even it is likely to be affected by the um, the virus because if people are starting to live their lives more locally, then they're um, you know working more from home and getting their needs met in their local hub hubs and you know communities. There there won't be as much um, long distance commuting to the city, I would I would suspect, and 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 suddenly the the, the northeast link will look like this you know massive over specified. Um, stupid monster. Yeah, which we could already say that it is, but we can yeah. hope that um, perhaps that 
those changes in our lifestyles could um, could help to to perhaps halt the project. Oh yes, yeah. The the scale of the thing is just I think just just outrageous. It's being built on the scale of the worst of the sort of Los Angeles. Yeah, it's it's going to be the biggest road project ever in Victoria, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Could I um, mention somebody, William McDougall? He's a he's a transport planner who's worked on many of the large projects that have happened in Melbourne in the last twenty years. Um, but he's often been the, um, the the critical voice saying, "Hey, from within the within the um, government or within the the um, uh, consultants, he's been he's been the one saying, "Hey, are you sure this is the right thing to do? Have you really analysed this properly?" So if you if you Google Google William McDougall, um, I, I, you can find his. He's got a got a website that's got interesting stuff. Okay, great. Analyzing Thanks. analyzing his these projects from his point of view, and his point of view, I think, is often far more rational and balanced than what we get from the governments. Which often what we get from the governments and their consultants is just basically um, um, a puff piece to uh, justify the project they want to build. Yeah, if you're interested, you could also um, you could look up Stop the Northeast Link Alliance. I think they mm -hmm. have a website and a Facebook page. Uh, and especially if you're in the area, uh, there are opportunities to join in um, speaking out against this project. I do find it, this is a bit just my speculation, but uh, the difference between um, the protests against the East-West Link compared to the Northeast Link, partly it might just be that uh, the kind of demographic that live in the area where the mm. East West Link was planned to be built uh, tends to be quite a lot of students and activists. Um, yep. But I, I wonder whether actually the, the lack of accessible public transport in the Northeast contributes to, uh, a, a, it kind of creates a barrier to people actually being able to mm -hmm. access that area um, and go to protests and be physically there, which is an interesting kind of yeah. ironic. Well, <laughs> um, also, yeah, I think you, I think you're onto something. Also, the people who live in the area, who 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 are uncomfortable about the northeast thing, they still have you know have multiple cars, and and know know that they themselves you know, think they need their cars to get around because there's not much in the way of alternatives. So they end up perhaps being a bit torn between, you know, not wanting their environment ripped apart for the mm. Northeast Link, but at the same time thinking, oh, yeah, but I do want to be able to use my car, you know. What suburbs are we talking about? Oh, go on. Go on, Zeb. Um, <laughs> we're thinking about, like, areas like Banyul and... Um, yeah. Gurundara, I think. Yeah, Gurundara. Greens, Greensburg? No, not Greensburg. No, sorry. Um, what's the big shopping centre out there? Mm. Yeah. It's, no, it's um, getting out towards Eltham. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. Getting People out. People do have to rely on there's cars. A big, there's a big, yeah. there is a big wedge that's mostly served by the Hurstbridge, the, the Hurstbridge Railway Line is their main yeah. rail corridor. Um, yeah. Uh, and apart from that, you know, there's uh, the usual Melbourne ratty sort of bus services that don't mm. seem to have any 
comprehensive pattern to them. They've just just grown up historically mm. over the last fifty years, and mm. uh, and uh, just totter along. Mm. So you, you basically, you know, the Hurstbridge railway line will get you to the city, and it'll get you to um, you know nodes along the, the rail line. But apart from that, you're uh, reliant on some pretty pretty tatty bus services. Yeah, it seems to be the Melbourne Melbourne norm, but the Northeast Link, I think, you know, it it is, it's got to try and pay for as much of a much of its construction as as can as possible itself, which means tolls have to be as high as possible. That and also means usage has to be as high as high as possible, mm. um, and that's important both to the government and to you know whoever builds it, I think. Although I think the government's going to be the, I think the government's going to be the uh, eventual owner of the whole thing. I think, Seb, is that right? It's going to... I'm not sure on that point. It's it's a funny arrangement. Um, mm. They're trying to, they try to, the government's try to make the risk um, um, go on to the private companies that are involved with construction but it usually doesn't work in the end the government has to has to end up being the being the um, sort of lender of last resort but the so the government needs as much traffic as possible to be using the northeast link mm. uh, yeah the estimate is 135,000 vehicles a day yeah and yeah. i saw some other estimate that suggested the average toll would be something like ten dollars a trip mm. Um, so that might be, you know, a two-way trip might be $20 a day, which would be, you know, five days a week, 100 mm. a week. I imagine there'll yeah. be cars, car drivers screaming at the cost, cost like that, yeah. Well, because the other thing about freeways is that they're often actually, like they're, they're presented like they're a service for local drivers, but a lot yeah. of the time there's a big economic aspect in terms of freight connectivity. <laughs> which isn't isn't always part of the conversation no. really like the impact is on the communities that these freeways go through but the benefit may be largely for companies um transporting yeah, yeah um, i think yeah. i think in general that's that's right the um, often the basic excuse for building the freeway network would be said oh it's for commercial traffic and mm. uh, but they they need then to have all, as many as um, commuter trips as possible on the, on the infrastructure as well, because somebody's got to pay for it. Mm. Uh, and that's that. I think that's been the basic model that Melbourne's Melbourne's used ever since um, ever since CityLink. You know, with Jeff Kennett back back then. That's been the mm. basic thought behind it. Uh, mm. And yeah, so the so the. So the private motorist really subsidises the commercial and uh, freight freight traffic, yeah. But the irony is, of course, that everybody gets stuck in the same traffic jams on the freeways. Yeah, <laughs> buses, trucks, yeah. and cars. The whole mm. lot, the whole lot. So you end up, you end up. It's a very inexact, um, inexact way to do it, and you do have to ask yourself: Well, if you need, if you need links to the city to get. People, you know, workers to and from the city, wouldn't they be far better off on decent, decent um, transit system, you know, urban transit systems like um, trains? Yeah.
Yeah. Well, this is the interesting moment that we're in, um, like, as you both mentioned about uh, the impact of COVID on public transport, but also on people's living and working arrangements. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, interesting that it does seem like things are now going back to Mm -hmm. quite a similar sort of system that we had before of of cities, but, you know, people working in cities and commuting. Mm -hmm. But I'm certainly interested in it from, uh, you know, as a amateur permaculture person. Um, David Holmgren, I think, quite presciently before any of this stuff Mm. ever happened, put out Retro Suburbia talking about this, which I think is kind of what, you know, I don't know, I haven't heard the 15-minute city um, phrase, but I'm assuming it's a similar kind of thing. Mm, It would definitely fit in well with with the ideas behind Retro Suburbia, yeah. Yeah, and he really anticipated the fact that suburbs are, you know, uh, ripe for the opportunity for people to actually live and work within them and have a more localised... Uh, have more localised economies, more connections between people in their local area and identifying the fact that, you know, during a working day, a suburb is largely empty Mm. except Mm. for people who have roles that are usually ignored within the economy, like caring roles and um, other home-based roles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think permaculture... I think permaculture has been a is an amazing uh, concept. Uh, mm. I've been aware of it for about about thirty thirty years. I think, yeah, yeah. And it's um, even though it's an Australian invention, it's um, it's um, seems to have had much more impact in some other countries. Yeah, it's mm. good for 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 rethinking and reframing a lot of the things that we take for granted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's there kind is, of grassroots change that can. It can then push upper levels um, to adapt around it. Yeah, that's what that's what you you hope. I'm 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 aware of and it, well this this is sketchy because I've, it, it's been a while since I've read anything, but I know an Indian village that's in, on the edge of the desert in Rajasthan um, has managed to you know turn itself green green you know in, in, with the permaculture. Um, uh, concepts and it's been you know it's been incredibly successful in making the, making this village which is probably far larger than what we'd call a village mm. into something into something you know a place worth living you know it's mm. been uh, mm. and that's been reclaiming literally reclaiming bits of desert you know and things like that yeah 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 um so in the last few minutes that we have for yeah. City Limits today, I'm just wondering if there's any news on any of the level crossing removal yeah. project item, yeah, issues. Yeah, you read, you read my mind. To the <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, the level crossing uh, removal stuff's churning along and it's, you know, it's, you know, it's regarded gen- in general terms as a very, very successful uh, project. Um, and again, but again, most people, most people assess it, you know, to a in a political way, I mean it has been. It is successful. I have to say that. It's well, improved. it's good to it's good to end on a successful yes. point. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes, but there's always a but. Yeah. Because <laughs> I I have a problem with it, the way Melbourne does public transport in general. That we we never get the best. We get cheap and cheerful usually here in the way in the way most projects are carried out. You know. Um, I, I don't know where that comes from, but we never get best practice. We get cheap and cheerful. 
And that's happened a bit on the upfield line with, with some of the uh, level crossing removals. Um, I think I think Coburg Station, is that the one that's at Bell Street? I think it's the one at Bell Street. Mm, I think it is, yes. Yeah. yeah. Kevin, Kevin would like me to mention this. <laughs> yeah. Kevin would also point out that the service levels on the upfield line haven't improved. They've gone back to their 20 minute, 20 minute services all day, every day. Yeah. Uh, that they've always been, or at least they have been for a long time. But at the um, Bell Street, the station at Bell Street, which again, I think is Coburg, <coughs> the station is built on the elevated bit of sky rail. But rather than building the station over where the road goes underneath, so that you can have easy access from both sides of Bell Street up to, up to the station platforms, or putting, uh, they put the station all totally, I think it's south of Bell Street. So that anybody coming from north of Bell Street on foot still has to cross Bell Street on foot before mm. finding the vertical access up to the station. Whereas if the station had been built across the road, there could have been access from both sides without having to, without having to cross, the, cross the road. Also, it would have meant that buses coming from both directions could stop underneath the station and people could gain access to and from the platform without mm. again having to cross the road. So it's it's made bus bus access less um, convenient as, as, as well as pedestrian access less convenient. And I'm told that, the, that there aren't any escalators at that station, that there's a lift and there are stairs. But, mm. but compared with the stations in the southeast on the uh, Dandenong Line, Sky Rail, uh, it, it seems to me that the, the stations on the upfield line have been a bit under, under, underbuilt, underdesigned. Uh, Maybe it's because they just still secretly have the plan to just get rid of the upfield line that they tried to before. Let's not sink too much into this no, project. Uh, yeah, no, I see what you mean, though. Yeah, that, 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 that there's still somewhere in the bureaucracy such a well of hate for the upfield line. <laughs> Why? It's so unfair. It's my it's my train line and I'm very fond of it yeah. in a sad way. Yeah. Like I'm like, I know yeah. you could do better, but you're doing as best you can. Everybody's mean to you. Plenty of places at the north end of the upfield line where they could build lots more housing if they wanted to. If, it's not if, that far north, yeah. No, no. <clears throat> yeah. And, and so there are even ways to improve its its patronage. Mm. And of course, it yeah. could be reconnected to the line that goes up to Craggyburn at the top end, and take yeah. some of the load off the um, Broadmeadows line. You know, mm. and that's totally. that's a, that's a medium term plan, I think, in the cyber department. So, well, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. Could... Well, at least we've got these fifteen extra services per week. Oh <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you for being really positive, Zeb. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that positive note, we'll leave it there. And as we've reached the top of the hour, um, that's it for the show today. Thank you so much for coming on, John. And um, good to have you here as well, Zeb. And big thank you to Karina for pressing the buttons today. Cheers. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au 
or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests 
slow down the path of fire. And this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.